0: Before you launch it, really having a reason for doing it beyond just someone wants you to, but that there is something about it that's bringing something to the table that's important for your particular area
1: of business. That's Christina Greenberg this week on the Lean Startup Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome and welcome back. This is the Lean Startup Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs bringing ideas to life from startups to large organizations, governments, and nonprofits. Hi, and welcome back to the Lean Startup podcast, where we discuss innovation, innovators, and the need for organizations of all forms to continually reinvent themselves, to keep ahead in a world that just seems to be evolving faster and faster every year. I'm your host, Chris Guest. I'm a startup CMO here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Just started a new role actually with a sleep technology company called Bright, uh, which is all very exciting. But today's episode is again about pivoting and evolving a business idea in service of achieving a particular vision. But today we're specifically talking about what it's like to pivot outside of one's comfort zone or even branching out of your own core competency in service of that, that vision and that outcome. And our guest today is someone that has achieved exactly in that, not just once, but twice. She is Christina Greenberg, and she is the co-founder and partner of Agility Consulting, an Oakland-based company that helps youth serving nonprofits and education organizations find, hire, and keep the talent they need to make a difference. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's just start off with your life before Agility. What was it that you were doing um, before that in your career, and what's your background and, and specialism?
0: Yeah, so when I left college, I very briefly worked in the entertainment industry. I was at uh, UCLA and living in Los Angeles thinking I was going to be an attorney. So I took a, what I thought would be a very quick job, and it was a quick job. But um, soon I realized I really wanted to have some kind of meaning to my work and not just be helping executives make tennis appointments and bagels and schedule lunch. Um, and so I actually joined this, uh, Senator Barbara Boxer's 1998 Senate campaign. Um, I showed up to volunteer one evening, actually my first evening of volunteering. Um, Someone pulled me aside and said, you're an assistant, right? And I said, yes. And they said, oh, we have a job in the fundraising office. Do you want a job? (laughs) And so that was kind of the beginning of my true career. Um, After that, I worked in nonprofit management, also in LA, and I went to policy school. And I thought I was going to be a policy analyst doing, you know, spreadsheets and making big advocacy decisions and I tried that for a year and found that I wanted to be away from my desk more than I wanted to be behind it. And I had done some fundraising and development work with Senator Boxer and in other roles and um, joined an organization that was doing teacher recruiting and matchmaking um, in the Bay Area. And I joined it because I wanted to do nonprofit management. And it was a small team, but you know a C-level role for a small team. But what I really realized being there is that recruiting, you know, finding people, matching them to jobs, talking with. In this case, school leaders who were hiring talent about what they were looking for, and then making that magical connection um, to place someone there that was going to have an impact. I found that was really a passion and an excitement for me, and it married a lot of the skills I had in business development and in um, fundraising. You know, a lot of the outreach skills that I'd learned, but doing it in a way that really felt meaningful. So after doing that for a couple of years, I worked for four years for a program that um, mentored and trained aspiring principals, school principals, working in low-income communities here in the Bay Area, in Oakland, and other parts of the Bay Area. Um, And I, you know, decided after that, I had my second child, I was coming off maternity leave, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, decided to consult part-time, you know, not part-time, but for a short amount of time while I looked for my real job. And about a year later, my husband came to me and he's like, I think this is your job. I think you need to just do this (laughs) because I had stopped job searching and I was actually very busy with consulting projects. Um, And around that time, too, after doing kind of a hodgepodge of different things, I was increasingly getting calls from colleagues and friends saying, you know how to recruit people for schools and education nonprofits. Like you understand this world that not many people understand. Can we get your help? Can we hire you? And so I decided then, I guess I was a business owner. I wasn't just someone doing consulting on the side. I needed to figure out how to run a business. Um, I did come from a family where both my parents were self-employed. They weren't business owners. They were actually psychologists, but you know, I'd come from a place where I kind of knew a little bit about what it like, was like to work for yourself, but I didn't know anything about starting a business. Um, but I learned, I set up an LLC and I you know, did all those things that you need to do to be um, a sustaining proposition. Uh, created a name and a website and kind of went formal um, with what was then called Redwood Circle Consulting and ran that company for about five and a half years. Um, And then, you know, I was feeling like I was having good impact. I had a core of consultants that were working with me, but really felt like I wanted to grow bigger and I wasn't sure how to do that, just me running the business. And so I was talking with a partner that I really trusted and who had very complimentary skills to me and we decided to go out on our own and create agility, which was, you know, now a sustaining proposition, a larger firm, two of us running it across the country cause she's in the East coast. And we literally, she lives in New Hampshire. So we're not quite as far away as possible from each other, but pretty close. Um, and that's how I started what I was doing. And, you know, we weren't really sure when we first started similarly to when I first started my own consulting, we weren't really exactly sure what it would look like, but we had some guiding principles. We knew we wanted to do work in the talent space because that's where we both had expertise, recruiting people, placing people, helping people make good decisions about hiring. We knew we wanted to focus on organizations that served youth and families that were underserved, you know, low-income families, families of color, students that were struggling for one reason or another in the school systems that we have today. And we knew that we wanted to run a business that was lean. We didn't want a lot of overhead. We didn't want any drama or politics. Um, we wanted a firm where we all could just be ourselves and get along and a place that valued people as people, but also set a really high expectation for what we were going to get done. So I guess you would say that I think, you know, Alison and I, as moms of five kids between us, um, were very good at this, where we're very good at working very hard and being very efficient. And then, you know, each having, and all of us, all of our people having their own lives and bringing themselves to work every day and whoever they were. So that was kind of, those were our guiding principles.
1: Awesome. So you have this uh, experience and, and capability in, in talent and in recruitment. And you also mentioned there that you have a, a personal interest in helping underserved the youth. Tell us a little bit about, more about where that came from, um, how you uh, encountered that need and what resonates uh, so strongly with you.
0: Yeah, I mean, originally, I think for me, education is personal. You know, I am not a first generation college student. I'm very fortunate. Um, My parents both went to college and actually have graduate degrees. But one generation removed, both of my grandfathers, you know, grew up in pretty rural poverty. Um, One of them only graduated eighth grade, one of them went all the way through, but sort of by a happenstance of having to get um, an opportunity to get an education and go to high school and then stay and go to college, and sort of my other grandfather ended up being a math professor. Um, The one that only had an eighth grade education actually was able to go into the army in World War II, get the GI Bill, get a GED, and then support his family. And so for me, you know, two generations removed these, you know, family members that I care so deeply about, um, I saw how education made a difference for us, right? It put my family on a completely different path, um, financially, um, just personally out in the world, right, as people and, and privilege that that brought. And so I, there was always a sense that I wanted to give back in that way, um, and, you know, in that particular circumstance. Uh, my husband has been an educator as long as I've known him. So when we first met 23 years ago, I guess now, um, he was teaching in Los Angeles Unified. And so that was something also that, you know, I saw his journey as an educator and serving kids and how important that was um, working in school, serving low-income students. And then I just really got energized, living here in Oakland, in our community. um, You know, the school in my neighborhood is really beautiful and it's this lovely little district school and two miles away, there's schools that literally make me cry when I walk inside of them. And um, when I started working with the schools in my community, I was really angry about that. And I was angry that people where I live don't know about that or don't take the time to know about that. And I was angry that families that live two miles from me have such different opportunities. And so I just felt like, what could I do but that? You know, like mm. I need to do something about that. And I think, particularly in the recent um, political climate of the last few years, it's really easy to feel disempowered. It's easy to feel like, what could I possibly do? You know, with all these huge social problems and international issues and national issues that we face. And I've really doubled down and I've decided the impact I can have is on my community and on communities like mine. And what I can do is use the talents and skills that I have to put people who look like the families and communities they serve, who bring the skills um, necessary to really change the status quo to schools, to education, nonprofits, to youth development. And so that's sort of how I've decided to leverage my, my power. And then accordingly, and this probably gets into the other piece of your pivot question, thinking about what are other services or offerings we can provide as a business to help support those people once they're there and to help support those companies to be even better
1: great so you 've got a, a core capability and experience in in talent and recruiting, as you said your uh, that the impact or the change that you most want to make in the world is is to specifically help these underserved communities that you 've identified um, so the business that you 've built sounds like the ideal um, you know coming together of, of both of those worlds has has that given you everything that you 've needed to succeed it, or have you found along the way that uh, maybe you don't have everything that you need to help that community and you needed to add something else as well.
0: Yeah, we definitely had to add other things to the equation, right? So I think when Alice and I started, um, we were probably a little naive. We had an operations manager and um, we realized we needed to hire one recruitment manager. So we said, okay, let's, let's hire one person and that'll make a difference. But we were also really aware as we thought about that in the rest of our work that, you know, as two white, women um, that we needed if we were going to preach diversity and equity and inclusion that we needed to make that happen in our company also um, and so as we've added staff and we've now grown to have be 12 people um, you know permanent staff members we we thought about that right and I think it's really interesting there's always this misnomer that you have to change your bar or lower your bar to get a more diverse pool and I think particularly as women and you know for me as a mom who once upon a time felt like I wasn't treated as seriously when I had young children as other people because I was a mom with young kids. I think we're particularly sensitive to that um, and saying, no, you don't change your bar at all. You have the same bar. You just work harder to find a diverse, full people that can meet that bar. And so it's interesting. Friends of mine will say to me, wow, your team is so diverse. And I will say, well, look, if I value this just generally as a person, and if I'm going out to clients and saying it's important to them, if I can't recruit a diverse team for me, why would you ever believe I could recruit a diverse team for you? And if I can't provide, you know, compensation structures and HR supports and just people supports in my company that will make a diverse group of people want to stay, how could I help my clients think about how they think about their, you know, policies of finding, keeping, supporting people, to get diverse people to want to stay. So we realized really quickly, we needed to really think carefully about what we could do to create an environment where people would, you know, all different kinds of people would want to work, um, to really create systems for recruiting where we were recruiting all different kinds of folks. And then we were talking about what we valued with, you know, publicly with the people we were hiring, with our clients, with colleagues, just on our website so that people would hear that and understand that. And that's really made a difference, I think. And I think we make better decisions, both when you have a more just diverse group of people, right? Research shows that like different kinds of people together make better decisions. But more importantly for us, when you have people whose communities have been most impacted by structural racism and by inequality, when you have those representatives in your organization, right, who aren't tokens, and they're not like the one representative, but can bring different perspectives to the table. I think that makes you really think about that more carefully. Um, and then yeah. it makes our clients think about it more carefully too.
1: So let's just pause on that point there. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I, I recall from when we had the opportunity to speak before we started recording that, you know, you brought up diversity as being a particular topic that you you needed to make an extra focus on building out within, within your team and your network. And and this is obviously, and very quite rightly, a, a very hot topic in, in many areas of business nowadays. Um, what's interesting here is that you picked up on this as a very specific solution to a problem um, that you were describing to me before about how the, the need to uh, relate one-on-one with the people that you're serving and the importance of, of having the the representation and the and the insights um, from all walks of life in order to solve the problems that you want to solve and also to make the difference that, that you seek to in the world. Could, could you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really important for a really long time, you know, communities that have been disenfranchised or disempowered or left out of opportunity. Um, will have people, it's kind of the white savior complex we talk about, right? But we'll have people come in from the outside and tell them what will make a difference for them and create and enact policies. It's usually done, I think, with good intentions. Um, but I know, like particularly in my city, for example, I live in Oakland. It's the most diverse city, supposedly, or second most diverse city in the country, right? Um, and and yet there are other Oaklanders where if I were to come in and tell them, well, this is how you should run your community or run your, you know, your lives or your organizations or whatever it is, that would be seen as an affront, right? Because just because we live in the same city doesn't mean that we relate to each other's experiences similarly as a woman, I feel this way sometimes, right? Where there's certain issues as a woman Then, if I'm, you know, someone who was not identified as a woman came in and started telling me how to do things or what to do, um, you know, I think that would also be frustrating, right? So what we try to say is, okay, if we're going to say that we really care about supporting all different kinds of people um, and we want to say that there are communities that have been historically we know have been disenfranchised through structural racism and through government policies for, you know, since 1619, right, <laughs> um, when slavery first began, that we need to have those voices in our organizations and positions of power and working with our clients directly so that um, we really think about things in a different way. So I'll give you examples. You know, when we look at a question of working with clients, we're usually working in multiracial teams and often teams with different gen, folks with different gender identifications, right? And there are things that we will pick up on in conversations um, that you know, my African-American male colleague and I might have the same conversation but have different impressions. Or there are times where someone will pull me aside or pull him aside and have different conversations with us in the same room because of who we are and our identities. And that's really valuable, right? There are times where as a white woman, I can lean into and push around some of the white folks in the room in a way that is I can flex my privilege in that way and really make a difference. And there are other ways in which it really matters to people to have representatives from other racial groups that might relate to their own personal experience in the room also, cause they feel like they're being heard. So I think it's just, you know, like anything, it's just good to have different kinds of folks there at the table. Um, and again, it's a lot about our values. And if we're talking with our clients, it's important for them to have staffs that are representative of different viewpoints and identities. We need to do it ourselves.
1: And I'm interested is, is this a realization or something that you learn when you were already down the path of, of building a more diverse team anyway, or was it the case that you encountered this, uh, this challenge or this need when you were a predominantly white female team and you wanted to add more representation to your team and you were like, okay, we need to make this change in order to have the impact that we want. And then you needed to figure out how to do that.
0: That's a really good question. I think Alice and I both, because of our experience working, you know, in education organizations and kind of, to be honest, in organizations that often weren't as diverse as they could have been, and we saw the harmfulness that that caused, I think we both had a value. I don't know if it was super explicit. We didn't have a goal like we need X number of people on our team to be people of color or male or whatever in my profession actually being male is also. um there aren't as many male recruiters. <laughs> so that's also interesting too. That's a di- sort of a diversity metric you wouldn't think about, but actually we think, adds value to us as well. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think that I, I think it was a little bit of both where I think we, it was something that we both valued, but I don't know that we had a tangible kind of view of, oh, this is going to really help us because I think we knew it was the right thing to do. And it was a good thing to do to have a diverse team. I think what's been interesting for me is over the last four years building that team and seeing the benefits of that, I, I feel like I have a much deeper understanding of why it's really important. And I think it also enables us to have really interesting, rich conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, you know, for a while in our team, I was the only person who was a white person whose parents had gone to college, right? Like I was the only non-first generation college student white person on our team for a while. And that was interesting, right? And that pushed my thinking around things, you know, having conversations with folks. And and similarly, I think that um, just anytime you're able to be in an environment where there are people you have proximity to, that you care about, that you're close to, that have different perspectives than you, and you can have honest conversations about things that might be tough, but you're having that honest conversation from a place of love and care, I think you can really um, get to some really interesting insights.
1: Mm. And how did you get started of that then so after having this uh, realization and speaking with your co-founder, um, was it something that you just said okay well, we're going to carry on as we are and hopefully we pick it up on the way or did you have to make a specific plan uh, in order to to ensure that you uh, got a greater representation of, of all people as you built out your team and services?
0: Yes, as a recruiter I will tell you you have to make a plan so it's interesting like when we post a job, and we just put it up, right? I would say the initial applicant pool is 80%, right? At least for most of our jobs. Um, and yet we find after we do some thoughtful, intentional outreach through networks of communities that are diverse, through reaching out to individual people that know and trust us, that we know and trust that are diverse, um, doing like more personalized, thoughtful, intentional cultivation, that's how you build a more diverse pool. And, you know, I think a lot of people will say to me, well, I would love to hire diverse candidates. They're just not out there. And there are great, super talented people of all races and backgrounds and genders out there. But you do have to look for them. Right. And you do have to also have messaging that appeals to them. You know, I've had friends give me job descriptions before and I've looked at it and they're like, I really want a diverse person. And I'm like, you know, this job description doesn't read that way. Like when I read the profile, you're basically talking about a white Ivy League guy. You know, and so the you know what you're looking for in terms of the qualifications aren't necessarily going to feel resonant, right, to someone who's different than that. Or, um, or you might have a case where someone you know says they want diversity, but the language they're using in their job description feels patronizing or doesn't feel welcoming, right, to people. So a lot of it, I think, is it's very intentional, um, and you need to be intentional, and then it does actually build on itself because one of the top questions that you know a diverse candidate will ask us is are there people like me in that organization? And if not, why, why not? And actually, you know, anytime we do a search, we're doing a needs assessment for a search right now. And that's one of the questions we ask is, you know, if we're gonna bring in a leader who doesn't look like, you know, isn't white or and or just doesn't look like the rest of the folks who are on the leadership team, how's that gonna feel to that person, right? And making sure that, um, they're set up for success and that organizations are thinking about that when they're hiring. So they're both recruiting and using messaging and using tactics. And then they're also thinking carefully about, are we a welcoming place for all different kinds of people to work and how do we signal that to them and how do we support them?
1: Hmm. I know this is a uh, um, something that a lot of people find difficult um, in many different areas and types of organizations. So I just wonder going back to what you said about some of the uh, almost unconscious biases, I guess, in job descriptions. Could you give any examples of that just to help make that concrete of of what are some things that uh, could reflect an unconscious bias and and, and what could help with that?
0: For sure. So um, one simple one is um, education requirements that don't matter, right? Mm -hmm. So MBA, I see all the time. Why an MBA? You know, I went to policy school. I think my math skills and analysis skills are just as good in MBA. I didn't, you know, take some of the classes you take, but depending on what the job is, that may or may not be important. Or other graduate degrees, PhDs or master's degrees. So just making sure that degree might be really important. That training might be important, but don't just put it in there because we think it's important. Let's actually think about what are the true qualifications of the role, right? Um, Sometimes there are particular experiences with really kind of niche, you know statistical products or, you know, certain kinds of um, software, things like that, that might be learned, right? So is it really important that someone has kind of been done this particular thing, or is that something that could be learned? Um, Again, also in the descriptions, I think sometimes we can use language around buzzwords, you know, strategy and innovation and game changing and trend-setting and Those things are all great, but especially, you know, here in the Bay Area, they feel very familiar to us, they're very techie, but that might not resonate to someone who's coming from a different professional background. You know, if they're a teacher or they've worked in nonprofit work, that might feel like, "Eh, I'm not sure that's really me, you know? Mm. Um, And then the thing that I noticed the most is they, you know, again, just building a profile where you're really looking for, you know, a very specific kind of person. Again, I'm going to say it again, like the white Ivy League male guy, Right. Um, but you want that person, you want all the things they have, but then you want them to happen to be a person of color or a woman. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you really need to think about, let's step back and think, what are the essential skills, qualities, experiences for this role? And that that can come in different packages of people, right? And so it's less about, you know, I want someone who looks like Mark Zuckerberg because Mark Zuckerberg has been successful. And so if I find that person, I will find, versus what are the skills and qualities and experiences that may have made someone like that successful? And let's figure out how to identify those in our hiring process. And we all use heuristics, it's human nature, like, oh, this person was successful, so if I find someone just like them, they'll be successful. Or I like that person, they seem like me, and so I feel comfortable with them, and so I wanna hire them. But let's step back and really think about what are the core skills and qualities that are most important, and look for those. And then challenge ourselves if we're starting to judge people based on, I like them, they seem like me, I think these things are important, culture fit, you know, these things that as tend to be, I think, red flags sometimes, um, and go counter to our ability to really find the best person for the job, whoever they are.
1: Awesome. So let's just talk about the uh, the, the outcome that this creates in terms of your customers, as I understand it, then are schools and other educational establishments that want the best possible talent to teach the youth or use the, lead the organization um can you mention some specific examples where having the right representation of talent in those roles can make the difference between whether or not they really succeed
0: yeah so i mean I'm, you know i won't give specific client names but i think um so there are examples you know working with so school organizations I'll start with, right? because you're working directly with families and communities and kids. Things as simple as if it's a school where you know for many of the families their predominant language is not English. right? So let's say Spanish, for example, which is common in California. Um, it's not necessary, but someone coming in who speaks Spanish who also maybe is from a culture similar to those families. There's a level to which they'll be able to relate to them. There's a level to which the programming or the supports they provide can be more culturally relevant. Not required, but that can be really helpful, right? Um, and can give a different take. And I know um, there's, you know, a school organization that I've worked with where you know someone that we helped encourage to take her role came in with that, and it kind of dramatically changed that school's ability to connect with families and parents and to understand the experience of a first-generation immigrant who maybe came here without papers, who maybe, you know, whose family didn't speak the language, who had these different things going on in their lives. Um, And so I think that's just a case where someone having a personal connection can really help, particularly in a school context. I think in nonprofit organizations, it just really helps because um, so often, again, and I'll go back to kind of the white savior idea, but, you know, you have a nonprofit organization that's maybe focused on helping first-generation college students get to college and beyond, right? or helping give you know, tutoring program to kids so they can catch up in school. And those are all really important things. And I think communities really appreciate them. But is it done from a place of respect and care for the families and the kids? Or is it done more from, I wanna feel good about what I'm doing <laughs> and so I'm gonna provide these services. You know, Maybe I'm providing a tutoring program in a community. Maybe it's actually not about tutoring. Maybe it's about figuring out how to help our kids get access to college scholarships right or maybe it's about helping families understand how the process works for higher education when they don't understand that and i think if we just come in with an idea and we just implement it we may not be stepping back and thinking what does this community actually need and want if the the issue is not if kids are going to college There are a lot of reasons that could be the case. And let's try and figure out in this community why that is the case. And so that's where, again, it's not necessary, but having people who've lived that personal experience to understand. One of my colleagues gave a great example where, you know, um, in past organizations, they've talked about, oh, well, you know, we'll have people put up all this upfront money for an interview process or something, and then we'll pay them back. And he said, that's really great. But especially if you're talking about teachers and you're talking about first-generation college students, who probably have other family members that may be depending on them financially, who have a lot of student loan debt, who have other things going on for them, who don't have families who have homes and assets and savings accounts that they can give them when they graduate, putting out a few thousand dollars is actually really hard for that person, even if they're gonna get reimbursed two months later, right? And so just really thinking, and that was like, that's a really great push, and like in his organization at the time, no one had thought about that before it's a really small thing, but it's an important thing, so it's just having folks that can resonate with the folks that you're trying to support and serve
1: yeah, gotcha so this is the the first area then that um in service of the the goal or the outcome that you wanted to achieve uh, to to help uh, the, the underserved youth, you realize that, okay, this is a particular strength that we need to build into the team we have. The other one you told me about is uh, a different capability that you had less, less experience of, which was compensation. Tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, that's such a good question. So, you know, we, as I mentioned, both my colleague Alison and I came at this work largely from recruitment selection initially. Um, but really quickly, we were getting a lot of clients who said, hey, once you help us find people, we need to figure out how to pay them <laughs> yeah. like we're you know we're either losing talent we're realizing because we're not staying competitive or you know and again this kind of intersects with diversity equity inclusion at times right we all know different different groups um, sometimes they're paid more or less women are often paid less than men people of color are paid less than white people women of color are lowest paid versus everyone right um and so realizing that there are inequities perhaps in their pay structures or they're losing Staff, and they're not really sure why, but they think it has something to do with compensation. You know, in my sector, compensation is not the end all be all. And I actually would argue in any sector, we all like to say that the salary is the number one thing and it, it matters, people have to live, they have to feed their families, no question. But a lot of what compensation does is it signals your value in the marketplace from your employer, right? And it also signals and that value can make a difference if you feel like it's not commensurate with what you think your value is or you're looking around and saying, oh, my salary or benefits or compensation is lower than this other person over here. Does that mean I'm worth less than them, right? And so it just creates, can create inequities and issues. Um, And so a lot of clients were coming to us saying, what do we do about this? So my partner, Allison, particularly, although me too and all of us, but She's a really creative problem solver, and she said, you know, I think we should just start doing compensation work, and so we decided to start looking at this, and we hired someone who's actually a PhD, former scientist, um, who was excited to tackle this data challenge with us, and came into it the way we come into other engagements, where rather than just coming in with numbers, which there's obviously a large numbers component to compensation, you know, market competitiveness, right, and we do all of that. But we also come into the organization and talk with people talk with staff members distribute surveys um, have focus groups and working group conversations around how do you feel about your organization do you feel valued do you feel heard do you understand right um, where you know where you live in terms of the promotional ladder do you understand why you receive certain benefits or pay and others receive others And what we found through that is that was another lever to really increase our clients' competitiveness in finding and keeping great talent and to make sure they were being equitable and fair to everyone internally. Um, And so that lens has really helped our clients and it's also helped us as an organization selfishly. Um, Search can be a very cyclical business, right? Um, And a little less predictable at certain times. Compensation is, you know, we set a timeline and we do it on the timeline. And, you know, so it also can help um, for us, it helped buff it a little bit the ups and downs of the other pieces of our business to have something that's a little more steady. And it helps complement because as I mentioned, we have clients who will hire us to find somebody and then say, oh, and can you help us and figure out our compensation system? And vice versa, clients who hire us do compensation and have a great experience and then say, oh, now can you help us recruit talent? So it's actually, um, it's a little scary sometimes to build out new business lines, but it's fun. And that's one thing we did. Another business line we're just starting to build out is actually doing equity audits. So kind of combining our interest in diversity, equity, inclusion, and compensation, and doing a broader look at the organization across all the different roles and people and saying, you know, are, are you benchmarked appropriately? And are people doing the right jobs in the right way? And do they understand their roles and things like that. So that's another level that we've, we're just starting to do a couple of those um, as another business line as well.
1: So how do you uh, hire uh, an expert in a domain that you're, you're not you are not a self, an expert in? I mean, how do you know that you're getting the right person and what they're telling you makes sense? I always think that's an interesting challenge in, in any uh, department.
0: That's a really good question. So one thing, and I will tell you, I've done this with other recruitment people we've had internally too. Um, sometimes you just find a really smart person that you think has the skills and train them up. So the woman that we hired actually in this case, um, you know, what was someone that, you know, we knew through other ways. And um, she was just a data whiz. And again, a former scientist who at the time was actually not working or working part time, I forget exactly what, but sort of looking for her next job. Um, and we approached her and said, hey, we're going to start this compensation practice and you're really smart about data. What do you think about doing some data? crunching for us and so she started just literally just managing spreadsheets right and then really quickly we saw and she saw that she was really good at it and she enjoyed it and she started participating more and more in the client interactions and now she actually leads most of our compensation studies she leads most of the work for it talking with the individuals meeting with the client you know supervising um obviously all the data production so I've had actually a lot of luck with that in my career. Maybe it's having been a former consultant and also having a business for so many years that was just subcontractors, right? I mean, for over five years, everyone that worked for me were just subcontractors, which means I had to keep them really happy and really respect and take care of them because they could take another job tomorrow, literally, right? Take another project. And so I think as a result, we've been really good at identifying people who have skills and seem really talented and then saying, all right, we're a growing business. We're trying to pay this out, but this is something we're thinking about doing. Do you want to be a part of it and try it out? Sometimes it doesn't work, but luckily we've been fortunate. It's worked out pretty frequently and enough times that we've been able to build our team that way.
1: Awesome. So there's an interesting uh, tension within the, in the life of an entrepreneur where sometimes we're told that uh, we need to pivot to create whatever, whatever, product or service the customer really wants in order to fulfill our end goal Um, but it feels like almost an equal amount we're told to you know focus on our strengths and not worry about the weaknesses and 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 be more intentional about what we do and don't do so those sorts of things can be a little bit in tension maybe when it says okay i i've i've got a a capability that the or there's a certain service or capability that the customer seems to want that's not my own superpower I don't know much about it so how do you approach making the decision of this is something that you do decide to to go out of your comfort zone and add to your team versus saying okay sorry that's not for me uh we do this and we don't do that
0: that is such a good question so one thing I would say is that it's good to have different people on your leadership team that lean one way or the other. (laughs) So in listening to what you were saying, and you know, my partner Allison isn't sitting with me today, but you know, she's the former, she's the like new thing pivot. Let's try it. Let's go for it. And I'm a little more, let's create a process. Let's really get great at it. Let's refine it. Let's, you know, but I think what's good is we both have enough of each of those that we've been able to make it work. Right. So I think that um, part of it is sometimes you just see a market need and you know, it's, close enough to what you've done before or close enough to your skills and experience that you feel you could do it. Right. So I think with something like compensation, like we hadn't built out a compensation practice and done that data crunching necessarily, but you know, I was a data analyst once upon a time. So I'm comfortable with numbers and research studies, you know, Allison built out the human assets, HR function for a large national nonprofit from the ground up. So she had an understanding of kind of how do you create levels and roles and you know, figure out how to pay people. And so I think between the two of us, we had enough prerequisite experience that we felt like it was worth taking the leap and trying it. I wouldn't go out and do something totally foreign and new. Sometimes clients will ask us to do that, and I I won't. But I think part of what keeps us excited about this work is trying new things and expanding our horizons a little bit. And as a business, I think it is good for you to diversify. Um, You know, I do worry in my business sometimes that the economy tanks. Right. A lot of the organizations, whether it's schools or nonprofits, are dependent upon public revenues or philanthropic dollars. And I do worry sometimes that like being diversified is a good hedge against that harming us. And people always have to do compensation studies. It's actually often written into people's bylaws for their organizations. And so that's a nice, consistent thing we can do. People are always going to need to hire CEOs and executive directors and lead talent. And boards are volunteers and often don't want to do that work themselves. So I think if we can, in addition to all the fun passion projects we do or all the kinds of other things we do, if we have some stables of stuff that's a little bit more secure um, and a hedge against economic downturns, that's helpful. And I think as long as you're looking at a pivot, you have to have your North Star of the things that you will and won't do. And as any client services business, you have to have hard conversations with clients sometimes about saying, I know you want this, I'm not going to do that, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing I would finally say about it on the client level is you know, having really direct conversations with clients from the beginning about what you do and don't do. I think that's really important. I think it's really easy midstream to pivot. And perhaps it's because we're a fixed fee business and so I've given you a scope of work and a contract and perhaps it's because I've done this long enough but I have very transparent conversations from the beginning about this is what you're going to get with us. And this is who we are and what we can do. And there may be times with individual engagements or over time where we pivot or take a certain direction, but we never veer from those North stars of kind of what are the pillars of things that we are going to maintain.
1: Hmm. So have you developed over time, any sort of um, decision-making framework to evaluate whether or not you should or shouldn't do something?
0: we've done it more on just like a decision by decision basis. So, you know, but we do have sort of core principles, right? Like not distracting from the rest of the work that we're doing, not putting too much of a tax on our team right? Like we as partners might choose to overwork ourselves, but we don't want to overwork our team. (laughs) Um, You know, thinking about the market and just being savvy about whether or not it's something that we feel is a sustainable line of business. So there's some principles like that that we use, but I think it's really for us been on decision by decision basis because there haven't been that many decisions that we've had to make yet.
1: Hmm. And have you got any advice for any listeners that might be considering adding a new capability to their business or or to their organization that they themselves don't feel very close to and very confident in?
0: Yeah. So there are a couple of things I would say. One is start small. So just try it, try a you know, one engagement, right. Or, or one small, um, offering and see how it goes. I did that when I was an independent consultant and some of the things I tried, like recruitment and search became a core business, and some of the things I tried didn't work great or didn't make sense, and so I stopped doing them. So I think starting small and doing piloting—that's what we've done with our offerings that we've sort of spun off of, of other things—and that's been helpful. Um, the second thing I would say is before you start, just being clear about how you're going to measure success for that new initiative. So you know, what are the what? What will it mean to be successful, right? Um, and let's look at it in the beginning and the end and see if we really feel like the, we lined up. What we thought would happen is a success actually did happen. And if it didn't, then let's either discontinue or think about how we could tweak it. But just having a good rigor around decision-making and whether or not it makes sense. And then doing a little bit of market research. You know, you can talk with colleagues and friends and say, hey, is this something you'd be interested in or clients or trusted partners? Um, but before you launch it, really having a reason for doing it beyond just someone wants you to but that there is something about it that's bringing something to the table that's important for your particular area of business.
1: So how do you test something like adding a a compensation service to your current lineup? For example,
0: you do a couple compensation studies, right? You just try them. You do a couple and you see how it goes and you learn from it. And, um, you know, similar to the equity audit work that we're doing right now, we're, you know, doing a couple smaller projects to start and with clients and trying that out and seeing how it goes. So, But again, I think it's important to before and afterwards have some clear metrics for how will we know that we feel this was a success, right? Um, Not only because you want to make sure the clients are satisfied, that it makes sense, it doesn't put an inappropriate tax on your business, but ultimately it needs to be profitable, right, for it to work. Uh, One of my first search projects, I literally wrote a check to the client, right, because I didn't know how to line up my pricing with how I was paying people and Uh, One of my good friends, who's a financial analyst, sat down with me and she's like, we're going to create a business model for you. (laughs) And we did. And it worked. Right. (laughs) So sometimes it's also failure leads you to realize, okay, we need to step back and have a better way of doing this. And sometimes we discontinue it. Sometimes we just change either the economics of it or the program offering of it to make it work.
1: Gotcha. So it's great to hear how um, both of these two new areas that, that you've added over time have actually come to intersect. It, that didn't occur to me before about how, you know, the compensation issue is a particular uh, need or problem to be solved within the, the diversion and inclusion an, uh, angle as well. So How is that, um, those two new areas now represented within the overall positioning and strength of your business? Have they maybe even become, you know, gone from the outside of being not a core competence to now actually being a strength and a superpower?
0: They have. And this is such a good question because we just, um, we rebranded this last summer, fall, we, um, decided to update our logo and redo our website and as a part of that, I mean, this is exactly the question. We realized when we first created our website, we didn't even have compensation on it, right? As an offering. Um, and four years later, it's a, you know about 30% of our revenue. Um, and so that was one thing we realized, oh, we're gonna redo our website so that we have you know compensation front and center as well as the other services we provide. So that was an interesting just reminder to us that we were doing it kind of stealthily, but not as publicly. And so really making that part of our brand um, also, as we were thinking about our our branding and positioning, we did really realize we have something to say around diversity, equity, inclusion. I think when we first started, perhaps because Allison and I, you know, aren't people of color ourselves, or perhaps because we were new business owners, it just wasn't something we called out that much. And it may have been a value, and it may have been something we talked about with clients. But I think over the last year or two, we've become increasingly confident as a whole team, um, publicizing our stance on that issue and and highlighting it in our messaging. And so that was another piece that we did when we updated our messaging was really thinking about how are we communicating that in a way that feels true to who we are, but lets the world know that we do value these things and that we actually account for it in our work that we do.
1: Awesome. So how can we, the Lean Startup community, help you um, in that mission? And are, are you hiring? Are you looking for talent yourself or are you looking for uh, feedback on new initiatives, ideas or, or, or anything else?
0: Great question. Well, as a business that just added four staff members, you know, from eight, went from eight to 12 in just a couple of months. We're not hiring right now. We probably will be again, <laughs> but right now we're trying to onboard and support the people we just recently hired, but we are looking to help our clients hire people and help the sector. So I guess what I would say is that we have um, two ways. One is that we sometimes do work with ed tech organizations or organizations that might intersect with some of the lean startup folks in terms of expertise and knowledge in that sector. Um, the other thing is that we're also always looking for what we call sector switchers. So people who have really clear skills and experience in one time, ty- you know, in the private sector, in tech, in social ventures, who are interested in um, doing mission-driven work. And so that's another thing that we do. And the final thing is we do sometimes help organizations find board candidates. So um, there are times where we'll help someone find for a nonprofit or, you know, charter school board, help find candidates who might be excited to contribute their expertise to that organization. So yes, I guess what I would say is anyone who's interested in learning more about the education youth development sector to send us a line Our um, website, agilityconsulting.com. Um, but yeah, and we'd be happy to think about, you know, connecting them with opportunities, telling them about either volunteer or professional um, opportunities to get engaged.
1: Okay. And agility is spelt,
0: E-D-G-I-L-I-T-Y. So it's like edge-ility.
1: Gotcha. And where else can people find you online if they want to get in touch and find out more?
0: Totally. I'm at at Seal Greenberg on Twitter. And then we also have an um, at agility talent on Twitter. And we're, you know, you can find us on LinkedIn through at agility consulting.
1: Wonderful. Well, thanks very much for sharing your time and your insights as well. And thank you to everyone listening to this episode. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And remember to subscribe to get each new episode. If you have any suggestions or feedback, of course, we'd love to hear from you and discuss the content. You can find us on Twitter at Lean Startup. And do feel free to contact me directly at Gesto on Twitter which is G-U-E-S-T-O or slash Chris Guest on LinkedIn. And uh, until next time, thank you very much for listening. Take care and we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Lean Startup Company podcast. We also have a blog that goes along with this episode at leanstartup.co. If you're seeking to bring the entrepreneurial spirit to your organization, Lean Startup Company can help by providing training, coaching and consulting services. To learn more, Visit us at leanstartup.co or find us on Twitter at leanstartup. Thanks for joining us.